0: You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 44 of the show and it is definitely another busy episode for you this week. Of course, we uh, we have a major championship this weekend in golf. And the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs are in their conference finals. We'll get a preview of that, plus a recap of how the first couple games have gone. And over in the NBA, the NBA is wrapping up their second round series. And uh, we do have one team that's already punched a ticket to the conference finals. So definitely a very busy show for you this, this week. But we'll jump right into it, start off in the PGA Tour. Last weekend's tournament was the Palmetto Championship which was held at the Congaree Golf Club in Ridgeland, South Carolina. It was a par 71, distance was 7,655 yards. Now, this event was not originally on the uh, calendar. It was uh, originally slotted for the RBC Canadian Open this past weekend, but of course, due to uh, Canada's border restrictions for COVID, the event had to be moved to the U.S., and thus the Palmetto Championship was born. But uh, it was a long course. We had uh, a 600-yard par 5, a couple of real long par 4s on the front 9. And uh, the course itself was really nice. Um, you know, it's you know, the weather pretty much cooperated. We did have a minor issue. Uh, Sunday's final round tee times got bumped up a little bit due to the threat of weather. But uh, all things considered... The tournament went pretty well, but in the end, the uh, scores were fairly low. Uh, the winner was Garrick Higo at 11 under par. It was uh, he's 22 years old, South African kid. It's a second career PGA Tour start. His other start came in the PGA Championship a few weeks ago, and uh, this was his second start, and he ended up winning. He had been tearing up the European Tour over his last four starts, and we'll get into that in a second because he actually was one of my picks to click, believe it or not. Uh, he played exceptional golf all weekend, shot a 68 in the first, third, and fourth rounds, and a 69 in the second round. Um, he was cool, calm, collected the entire weekend, did not really seem to be phased at all at any point in the tournament, and his short game is phenomenal. Like, he is... He is exceptional with his his wedges in and around the green. And uh, I see some more PGA Tour wins coming for this kid. He's phenomenal. Now, there were six guys tied at 10 under par. One shot back of Higo. Six guys finished at T2. I'm not going to go over all of their rounds. But the six guys that were tied at 10 under, Hudson Swafford, Doc Redman, Jonathan Vegas, Tyrell Hatton, Bo Van Pelt and Chesson Hadley. Now the notable name from that group was Chesson Hadley because Hadley had a four shot lead coming into Sunday's final round. Uh, Hadley was four shots clear of Harris English uh, entering that final round and they both just absolutely uh, went the wrong direction. Uh, Hadley went four over for his Sunday round to bring him down to 10-under. He actually had, on hole 18, Hadley did, all he needed to do was par to force a uh, playoff hole because he had bogeyed 17. So all Hadley had to do was par 18, and it's a playoff hole. Well, he ends up hitting his drive on the left side of the fairway. Not a bad shot. Second shot, he smoked it, Went, cleared the green, hit off the grandstands, got a fortunate bounce back towards the green, sat on the uh, bottom of the uh, greenside hill. He putted it up the ledge uh, onto the green, rolled to the right about 12 feet wide of the cup, and then he missed that uh, par putt, which gave Higgo the win. And uh, we'll just that will lead us right into Rick's Picks to Click for the Palmetto Championship. The first one I gave you was Garrick Higgo. Uh, Unbelievable. He came in ranked number 54 in the world. And I, like I said last week, I didn't even know who this kid was until uh, this past week when I started doing some reading on him before the Palmetto Championship. Uh, He finished T64 in the PGA Championship, uh, which was his PGA Tour debut at Kiwa Island. And then prior to that on the European Tour, his last four starts on the European Tour, he had two wins, a T4 and a T8. So four top eight finishes and two wins on the European Tour. So I had said that I wouldn't be surprised if he finished inside the top ten, but I also wouldn't be surprised if he missed the cut. And Higo went out there and won this damn thing at 11 under par. Uh, We just talked about that. He had at least five birdies in each of his first three rounds, drained a huge eagle uh, putt on Sunday, and just looked super poised. Uh, The kid is going to be special. That win moved him up to number 39 in the official World Golf rankings. My second pick to click from the Palmetto was Matthew Fitzpatrick. He had missed two cuts in his last three events leading up to this tournament, including missing the cut at the Memorial the week before. However, uh, in his uh, nine previous starts in which he had made the cut, he had only finished outside the top 25 once. So i liked for him to come out and play well and he did he finished t10 at eight under par and he was only one under heading into the weekend rounds but he shot a three under 69 on saturday and then a bogey free five under 66 on sunday to move into that top 10 so fitzpatrick really cleaned up his weekend rounds and got himself a, a t10 so i clicked on higo and fitzpatrick my third pick-to-click was Dustin Johnson. He came into this thing. He's world number one. He's from South Carolina. He really hadn't been playing well as of late, but uh, due to the lack of true elite talent in this field, I liked for DJ to at least play some, some home field advantage in South Carolina. And he did. He finished tied with Fitzpatrick at T10, 8 under par. And he actually... Opened with a 6-under six 65 in round one, DJ did, and followed that up with a 3-under 68 on Friday. So he was at 9-under heading into the weekend. Uh, Saturday, he did not have a good round. He was at even par through 16 and then bogeyed the last two holes to end up shooting two over par on for Saturday's third round. Now, Sunday's final round for him was moving along nicely, but then he ended up triple bogeying, the par 4 16th hole to just completely train wreck his score and keep him out of contention. But nonetheless, DJ did finish T10, so I did click on all three of my picks to click for the Palmetto Championship. But this weekend, it's Father's Day, which means U.S. Open. The U.S. Open is here. It is the third major championship of this calendar year. It is held at the Torrey Pines Golf Course, the South Course, in La Hala, California, which is just outside of San Diego. It's a par 71. The distance is 7,652 yards. Now, the U.S. Open last year, of course, played uh, in the fall at Winged Foot Golf Club. Normally, it's played on Father's Day weekend. So this year, it returns to its normal Father's Day spot, which is good. That's tradition. That's what we want to see. We'll have a full capacity crowd on hand uh, t- to cheer on the golfers, just like we've seen here these last couple months. Last year, uh, the U.S. Open, Bryson DeChambeau won in impressive fashion. He won by five shots at Wingfoot over Matthew Wolf. Uh, but this course here, Torrey Pines. Uh, is looking like it is going to be a big challenge. Uh, it's just north of San Diego. It sits on the coastal cliffs uh, overlooking the Pacific Ocean. So, as the same with most coastal tournaments, wind is certainly going to be a factor. And we've seen some pretty hairy weather here over the years. The Farmers Insurance Open is usually played here. That's one of the first couple events on the PGA Tour schedule, uh, the Farmers Insurance Open, and that's always held at Torrey Pines. So, um, We've seen some pretty bad weather here over the years. There's going to be some fog, maybe some cooler temperatures at times, but uh, the course itself, there are three par fours that are over 500 yards, and then the rough is just nasty. It's tall grass. It's thick, and then the greens are the exact opposite. The greens are very firm, very fast, and so putting is going to be at a premium. Now, Torrey Pines actually hosted the U.S. Open back in 2008, and that's when Tiger Woods had that epic victory over Rocco Mediate. And uh, there's actually 14 golfers in the field this week that played at the 2008 U.S. Open that was here. And some other notes on the field. Of course, we have a loaded field like we do with all the majors. Uh, the last person to win back-to-back U.S. Opens was Brooks Kepka, who did it in 2017 and 2018. And so Bryson DeChambeau is looking to do that. Phil Mickelson, fresh off his victory at Kiwa Island, the PGA championship, is also going to be teeing up uh this weekend on an exemption. He's trying to complete the career grand slam. Uh Phil has won six major championships, but the U.S. Open is the only one that he has not won. Uh so that is uh definitely an interesting storyline to follow. Patrick Reed. He won the Farmers Insurance Open earlier this year here at Torrey Pines. So He's proven that he can play well here, so I'd look for him to potentially compete this weekend. He's looking for his second career major championship. And then John Rahm. John Rahm returns to the field this week, world uh, number two, I believe, after having to withdraw from the final two rounds of the Memorial Tournament. Remember, he tested positive for COVID uh, after his second round. Um or third round rather, it was after the third round he had tested positive for COVID, had to withdraw from that final round, but he had a six-shot lead. It was, All he had to do was play par golf on Sunday, and that, uh, that Memorial Championship was his, but he had to withdraw, so he's back in action this week. He's a heavy favorite. I believe he's the betting favorite to win this week in Vegas, but we'll check out Rick's picks to click for the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines. The first one I'll give you is Louis Oosthuizen. He's ranked number 18 in the world. And this guy always seems to be near the top of the leaderboard in a major championship. Uh, in his last three events, he has not finished any worse than T18. And he was the runner-up at the PGA Championship a few weeks ago. He finished T2. He is a premier ball striker, uh, which is going to be crucial on Torrey Pines. Keep the ball in the fairway. And he also leads the tour in strokes gained putting, which is definitely going to come in handy with those greens that are firm and fast. So I like for Louis Oosthuizen to finish inside the top 25. My second pick to click is Brooks Kepka. He's ranked number 10 in the world. And he's playing some of the worst golf in his career right now, outside of major tournaments and high pro, higher profile tournaments. In fact, in his last five starts... He's missed the cut three times, but he's also finished T2 those other two times, and those T2s came at the PGA Championship, a major, and at the World Golf Championship Workday Charity Open, which WGC events are always high-profile tournaments. So, Kepka's admitted that he struggles to pay attention uh, to focus in non-major championships, but I don't really need to say anything else about Brooks Kepka other than the fact that this is a major championship this weekend and he is a two-time winner of the U.S. Open recently. So you can bet on Brooks this weekend. Uh, I would be shocked if Kepka's not in contention to win on Sunday. My final pick to click for the U.S. Open is Colin Morikawa. He's ranked number four in the world. He has not finished any worse than T-18 in his last five starts, which includes two major championships and the Memorial Tournament. He is proving to be a big-time performer on the big-time stages. He won the PGA Championship in 2020 back in the fall, so he does have a major to his name. He's looking for his second major championship. And Morikawa currently leads the tour in green's hit, and strokes gained approach the green, Strokes gained, T to green. So he is a phenomenal player. Uh, If he can hit some greens in regulation this week, uh, the smaller greens are going to – he's going to need to be precise uh, with his irons, which he usually is. So I would like for Morikawa to uh, compete for the U.S. Open title this week. But it's always, like I said, Father's Day weekend, U.S. Open. What a tradition. I'll definitely be tuned in all weekend, and I'm sure – Most of you golf fans will be as well, but uh, we'll look forward to that. But we'll move over to the National Hockey League and do an update in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, We're now officially in the conference finals, but before we get into that preview, last week's episode we had made it through five games of the Boston Bruins-New York Islanders series. Uh, I had picked the Boston Bruins to win in six games. They were down 3 games to 2 on last week's episode, so we'll pick it up in Game 6. That game was tied after the first period, but the Islanders ended up with 3 goals in the second and 2 more in the third in a decisive 6-2 to blowout of the Bruins. So the Islanders won 6-2 to in Game 6 to take the series 4 games to 2, making my prediction of the Bruins in 6 incorrect. In the uh, Honda West division, the Colorado Avalanche and the Vegas Golden Knights, we had covered five games in that series leading up to uh, this week's episode. I had originally picked the Avalanche to win in seven games. Well, game six, the Avalanche were down three games to two, and this was just another fantastic game between these two teams. The final score really does not indicate how close the game was. Uh, Both teams scored within the first minute and 15 seconds of this game, and then it just went back and forth from there on out. Vegas took a 4-3 to lead into the third period uh, before getting some breathing room, just under like nine minutes left to go up 5-3. And then Vegas would add an empty netter um, and fend off a pretty heavy avalanche attack to win 6-3, to and clinched the series in four games to two. So six games, Vegas won that series. Now Vegas, if you recall, they were down 0-2. Colorado won the first two games of this series in Denver, and Vegas rattled off four straight wins in this series against the Avs, making them the fifth team ever uh, in playoff history to win four straight playoff games against the President's Trophy winners, which the Avalanche worked. So then, Vegas moved on to the conference finals. That set up the uh, two conference final matchups. I don't know if we're calling them Eastern Conference or Western Conference. I don't think they're being labeled as such. But conference final number one, uh, well, let me back up. I went 5-3 in my first-round predictions for the Stanley Cup playoffs. I went 1-3 in my second-round predictions, just absolutely abysmal. So I'm 6-6 six and six overall heading into the conference finals. So speaking of those conference finals, the first one we'll go over, the Tampa Bay Lightning and the New York Islanders. I'm picking the Tampa Bay Lightning to win in seven games. Now, the Lightning come into this series 8-3 and three in the playoffs with a plus-12 goal differential. And on the other side, the Islanders come into this series 8-4 and four in the playoffs with a plus-10 goal differential. So pretty evenly matched. Now, the deadline uh, trade deadline acquisitions for the Islanders of Kyle Palmieri and Travis Zajac have paid huge dividends for th- for them. Uh, but I just love the firepower up front for Tampa Bay. Uh, Kucherov, Stamkos, Point, that's just going to be too much for the Islanders to handle. And uh, that's not even mentioning Victor Hedman or Andre Vasilevsky, who is the best goalie in the game. Now, this series is actually two games in. Game one, uh, and games one and two, both in Tampa Bay, game one was close. Uh, It was a real defensive-minded game. Both teams had 31 shots on goal. The Islanders had a two-goal lead late in the game, but Tampa Bay's Braden Point managed to score a power play goal in the last minute in a late comeback attempt, Uh, but they fell short to get another one, so the Islanders hung on to take game one of the series uh, that brings us to Game 2 of that series. The Lightning, man, they came out ready to play. Uh, Braden Point, again, got the Lightning on the board about nine minutes into the game. The Islanders ended up tying it shortly after that, but the Lightning turned on the Jets and never looked back, really. Um, they ended up winning 4-2 to two to even the series at a game apiece. Andre Vasilevsky was just stellar in net for the Lightning There was a controversial goal in this one, though, game two. Uh, Tampa Bay scored a goal. They actually had six guys on the ice at the time, meaning they had too many men on the ice, but that play is not reviewable. Uh, Islanders coach Barry Trotz pretty much blew a gasket on the bench, but uh, that is again, that's not a reviewable play, so the goal counted. The Islanders lost, so that series, as it sits now, is one-to-one, so we'll see if My Tampa Bay and seven pick uh, comes to fruition here on next week's episode. But the other conference final matchup is the Vegas Golden Knights against the Montreal Canadiens. I'm taking the Vegas Golden Knights to win in six games. And I'm doing that. Vegas comes into this series eight and five in the playoffs, four straight wins against the Avalanche, uh, plus nine goal differential. The Canadians, uh, they have been the Cinderella story of the playoffs. They won that hard-fought seven-game series against the Toronto Maple Leafs after winning three straight games to close that out. And then they just absolutely demolished the Winnipeg Jets, sweeping them in four games. So you come into this thing wondering if the extra time off from sweeping the Jets is going to help them or hurt them. And... Vegas, on the other hand, is a much more physical team, and I think that is going to be the difference in this series. Uh, Vegas also has many players who are playoff tested, uh, including their assistant captain, Alex Petrangelo, who was the captain of the St. Louis Blues a couple of years back when they won the Stanley Cup. So uh, Vegas is uh, tried and uh, tested in the playoffs, and... Montreal is a very young team. They're very talented, super talented team, Montreal. But I think the lack of playoff experience uh, and the real lack of uh, physicality on their part, they got a couple guys that can that can lay some hits. But for the most part, Montreal is a skilled team instead of a, a finesse team like Vegas. I think that's going to be the difference. But this series is actually two games in as well. Game one... Uh, the Vegas Golden Knights, they opened the scoring in this game, meaning that this was the first time in over 447 game minutes that Montreal has trailed uh, this postseason. So a uh, fantastic streak there by Montreal. Uh, but Vegas actually went on to uh, take a 2 nothing lead uh, before Montreal rookie Sensation Cole Caulfield scored his first career playoff goal. that made it two to one Vegas, but uh, that was Montreal's only goal of the game. Vegas ended up scoring a couple more pulling away for a four to one victory in game one in a one nothing series lead. Now game two, Montreal came out quick in this one. They were up two nothing after the first period and uh, two minutes into the second period they were up three nothing so got out quick start both periods for Montreal, Vegas ended up trying to claw their way back in. Alex Petrangelo had a pair of goals, both uh, ridiculous shots from the point. But on the back end, Carey Price for the Canadiens stopped 29 of 31 shots that were thrown at him by the Golden Knights to help the Habs to a 3-2 Game 2 victory and even that series at a game apiece. So again, by next week's episode, hopefully we'll have a conclusion of this series. Like I said, I picked the, the Lightning in seven against the Islanders and the Vegas Knights in six games against the Canadians. So playoffs, uh, are we're almost at the Stanley Cup finals, so we'll have another exciting week of, of conference final hockey. So stay tuned on that. There's one game every night now that we're down to the final four teams uh, instead of Two games a night. We only get one game a night, so the teams can get a ar- day of rest in between. But uh, we'll have uh, some more updates in the playoffs on next week's episode, of course, with regards to the uh, Stanley Cup Final. But we'll move over to the NBA and do a playoff update here. We are uh, getting ready to wrap up the second round of the NBA playoffs. There is one second-round series that is over Uh, and that is in the Western Conference, which is where we will start. That series that's over already, the number two Phoenix Suns against the number three Denver Nuggets. Now, I picked the Suns to win in seven games, and on last week's episode, we had gone over game one of that series. So we'll pick it up here in game two. Uh, Phoenix was up. They won game one. Uh, and they showed up in a big way in Game 2. It was a 123-98 route of the Nuggets. Chris Paul had 17 points, 15 assists. Devin Booker had 18 points, 10 assists. And then uh, the NBA recently named NBA MVP Nikola Jokic for the Denver Nuggets had 24 points, 13 rebounds, and that still was not good enough. And after Game 2, Phoenix was up 2-0 in the series. It was pretty clear that the Nuggets were just simply... Outmatched, uh, Jokic was doing everything he could, but he just did not have enough help. Same kind of story in Game Three. Uh, it was do or die for the Nuggets. Obviously, you can't go down o three. Well, uh, Nikola Jokic had his MVP trophy party in this one, and the Suns did nothing but spoil that. Suns ended up winning one sixteen one o two. Devin Booker twenty eight points, Chris Paul twenty seven points, and then Jokic. At least he made use of his MVP party because he went berserk. 32 points, 20 rebounds, and 10 assists. And that was still not good enough for Denver to win. So, again, Game 3. If Game 2 didn't say that Denver just wasn't good enough, Game 3 certainly showed that the Nuggets just could not hang with the Suns. Now, that put the Suns up 3-0 in this series. And in NBA history, teams that... Uh, have gone up 3-0 in a best-of-seven playoff series, have never lost. They are 142-0 in NBA history. So that makes Game 4 pretty much you knew what was going to happen, right? Uh, Denver did come to play. They had three of their five starters with over 20 points. Uh, But Booker and Paul, man. Uh, Devin Booker had 34 points, 11 boards. Chris Paul, 37 points. And that was enough for the Suns to win 125-118 to 118 to take the sweep. Now, there was some late drama in this one. Nikola Jokic ended up swatting the ball out of uh, Phoenix's Cameron Payne's hands. But when he did that, his, Jokic's arm grazed the face of, of Payne. And uh, that led to some players getting in each other's grill. But uh, Jokic was given... Uh, and a flagrant two foul and an ejection, so that ended his season. So the Phoenix Suns became the first team to punch their ticket in the conference finals this year. It is their first trip to the conference finals in 11 years. Now, after the series was over, uh, the Suns got some horrid news. Chris Paul has been placed in the NBA's COVID protocol and is out indefinitely. So they didn't say whether he tested positive or not. I assume he did if he's in COVID protocol. But this could be an absolutely fatal blow to the Suns' championship hopes if Chris Paul cannot play at all during the conference finals. So that is something to keep an eye on. Stay tuned on that. But the other series in the Western Conference is the top-seeded Utah Jazz against the number-four-seeded Los Angeles Clippers. I picked the Jazz to win in six games, and uh, that is definitely in jeopardy. We had covered game one of that series on last week's episode, so we'll pick it up in game two. It was pretty much a similar story as game one. Utah won a close one 117, 111. Donovan Mitchell, 37 points for the Jazz. And uh, the Clippers, though, they had three starters Kawhi, George, or Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Reggie Jackson they all had over 20 points but uh, Utah took care of their home floor they won both the first two games to go up two nothing so we go to LA for games three and four game three obviously a must win for the Clippers Kawhi Leonard Paul George they just balled out man Uh, Kawhi had 34 points 12 boards PG3 added 31 points and Donovan Mitchell had 30 for the Jazz, but that was not good enough. The Clippers ended up with a route in this one, 132-106, to 106, to get back into the series. Game 4 was actually a pretty similar script to Game 3. It's just like Game 2 mimicked Game 1, Game 4 mimicked Game 3. Kawhi, jo- uh, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George both had 31 points to uh, get the Clippers passed. The Jazz, Marcus Morris for the Clippers, he had a monster game with 24 points. Of course, Donovan Mitchell did his thing with 37, but uh, Clippers ended up taking that one 118-104, tied the series at two games. Now, after game four, it was announced that Clippers forward Kawhi Leonard was not going to play in game five due to a right knee injury. Additional reports said that the Clippers are fearful that Leonard has suffered a substantial ACL injury, which would just be absolutely devastating. Uh, I'm I would be surprised if Kawhi Leonard came back to the playoffs this season. Uh, if in fact it is an ACL injury, uh, that is just out just horribly bad luck for the Clippers. They just tied the series, and then they lose their best player, which. That is, that's not good, but they do have Paul George, so we fast forward to Game 5. Series is tied at 2. Of course, Kawhi Leonard is not playing for the Clippers, but Paul George, he came out and he picked up the slack. He scored 37 points, had 16 rebounds, and the Clippers ended up winning Game 5 in Utah by a score of 119-111. to 111. So As it currently sits right now, the Utah Jazz are on the brink of elimination, down three games to two. But we'll move over to the Eastern Conference. There's two series there. The top-seeded Philadelphia 76ers and the number five-seeded Atlanta Hawks. Now, I picked the 76ers to win in six games. That ain't happening, but this series has been an absolute gong show. We covered the first two games on last week's episode, so we pick it up here in game three. The Sixers, uh, the series was tied after two games. The Sixers got a complete team effort in game three. Uh, Six of the Philadelphia players were in double figures. Uh, They won 127 to 111. Of course, Joel Embiid for the Sixers, 27 points. Trey Young had 28 points for the Hawks in the loss. So that put the 76ers up two games to one. Now, Game 4, this thing was getting out of control early. The 76ers were up by as much as 18 points in the second quarter. But the Hawks, they're scrappy. They showed their resiliency. And Trey Young led the way for the Hawks and managed to uh, lead a comeback to a 103-100 victory to even the series. So Trey Young had 25 points and 18 assists. And Joel Embiid for the 76ers, 17 points, 21 rebounds, which is outrageous. Um, But that game, the 76ers blew an 18-point lead, let the Hawks back in to even the series. So we move over to game five. Okay, this game is in Philadelphia, game five. The Hawks, they looked at their game four performance, and they said, hold my beer. Because the Hawks got down... By 26 points in the third quarter, it was 72 to 46. That was the score, with about eight and a half minutes left in the third quarter. But again, Trey Young, hold my beer. He had 39 points in this game, 25 of which came in the second half, and he led the charge on another comeback. And the Hawks won 109 to 106. Just an absolute disaster for the 76ers. This is what I found the most outrageous about the entire game. The Philadelphia 76ers only had two players make a field goal in the second half. And that was Joel Embiid, no shocker, and Seth Curry. That is just, how does that happen? How do you have two players make a field goal in the second half? Uh, that's precisely why they lost. Uh, if I mean, this series is going back to Atlanta. For game six, and uh, man, this thing this thing might be over in six games, just like I predicted. But I said the 76ers are gonna win. Uh, the Hawks are looking really good. Uh, they're they're just like I said, there's no no quit in them. But the uh, final series here is, is also in the Eastern Conference. It's the number two Brooklyn Nets and the number three Milwaukee Bucks. I picked the Brooklyn Nets to win in six games. On last week's episode, we covered the first two games. So we'll uh, pick it up here in game three. Game three uh, was pretty much do or die for the Bucks. The, the Nets had won the first two games of this series, and the Bucs knew that they were not going to win four straight against the Nets, so they had to win this one. And the Bucks came up to the challenge for sure. But this game, the first two games, there was a lot of points scored, uh, but this game, game three, was very odd. Uh, super low scoring, the Bucks ended up winning by a score of 86-83. to 83. So neither team even got 90 points, which is, that is uh, weird. But the Big Dogs did show up for both teams. So for Milwaukee, Giannis Antetokounmpo, 35 points, 15 rebounds. Chris Middleton, 33 points and 14 rebounds. Meaning that between Giannis and Middleton, they had 68 of the Bucks' 86 points. So then you look at the Nets in that game. Kevin Durant had 30 points and 11 rebounds, and Kyrie Irving had 22 points. So KD and Kyrie combined for 52 of the Nets' 83 points. So there wasn't a lot of scoring, but there was a lot of scoring for the top players on each team. So that was a weird game, but... Nonetheless, the Bucks got themselves back in it. So you go to Game 4. James Harden was still on the bench for the Nets because he's been fighting a hamstring injury. Didn't play in Game 3 and uh, did not play in Game 4 either. And to make matters worse in this one, after only 17 minutes of action, Kyrie Irving jumped up for a ball and came down, landed hard on his ankle, spraying the hell out of it. It looked nasty. He had an MRI, which confirmed that it was only a sprain and nothing worse, which is good. So Kyrie Irving was ruled out automatically for game five. Um, but definitely keep an eye on this uh, on this injury moving forwards. But as for the game four, uh, Kevin Durant did all he could do to keep the Nets in the game. He scored 28 points, had 13 rebounds, and that just simply wasn't enough because Giannis had 34 points and 12 rebounds. Chris Middleton chipped in with 19 for the Bucks, and they cruised to a 107-96 Game 4 win to even that series at two games apiece. Now, Game 5, the Nets were without Kyrie Irving, but they did get a boost to the lineup because James Harden came back. He missed uh, Games 3 and 4 to that hamstring injury. But Harden was on the floor, for Game 5, but he just was not effective. Uh, It was the Kevin Durant show. Kevin Durant went absolutely nuclear with 49 points, 17 rebounds, and 10 assists to just carry the Nets to a 114-108 victory. Now, Kevin Durant played all 48 game minutes in this one, and it was the third time in his career that he's done that. All three have been in the playoffs. James Harden played 46 out of the 48 minutes, but he only managed five points and eight assists, just a complete non-factor, which is surprising. His shooting was clearly off. He did not make any of his three-point attempts. I think he had eight of them. But that is what you can expect after missing two games in the playoffs. So I would expect uh, James Harden to be a lot better in game six. Now, Giannis, on the other hand, for the Bucks, 34 points and 12 rebounds. I feel like he has this in every game. Like, that is his baseline, which is ridiculous. The guy is a freak. Um, but the game six is coming up. That's going to be a good – as that series sits right now, uh, the Brooklyn Nets are up three games to two. So I picked the Nets to win in six. That prediction is very much alive. We'll have to stay tuned on that. But uh, three of the four series will be wrapping up here in the next few days. So next week's episode, we'll have a preview of the conference finals uh, for the NBA. But we'll move over to Major League Baseball and do a standings update there in the MLB. We are roughly 70-ish games or so into the MLB season. So a couple more weeks will be at the halfway point. But we'll start off in the National League East. The New York Mets are 35-25, and 25, currently lead the division. Uh, they've won eight out of their last ten. However, they have an issue brewing, and that is in the form of their ace starting pitcher, Jacob DeGrom. After his start uh, last Friday, DeGrom officially had more RBIs than runs allowed this season. He had five RBIs, four runs allowed, which is just absurd. And DeGrom's ERA through the first 10 starts of the season is .56, which is officially the lowest in Major League Baseball history through the first 10 starts of the season. Now, after his start last Friday, it was announced that he had some soreness in his right elbow, which they took him out of the game a little earlier. Uh, I think it was six innings as a precaution. And he ended up making his very next start, which was this past Wednesday. But he only lasted for three innings before getting pulled due to elbow tightness. So, DeGrom, though, he had thrown uh, 54 pitches in three innings. He had not given up a run, and he had eight strikeouts in three innings, which, again, is just simply outrageous. And, oh, yeah, on the offensive side, he also had another RBI. So, even though he only pitched three innings, he has still more RBIs, six, then runs allowed this season, four. So he is, he is just absolutely amazing. Definitely the best pitcher in baseball right now. But the Mets at this point, I don't really think they have a choice. They they have to shut down Jacob deGrom, don't they? Um, I, I don't understand why they keep throwing him out there with this elbow soreness. I mean, I get it. 54 pitches from deGrom uh you know, nets you zero you know, zero earned runs and eight strikeouts. That's better than any replacement level pitcher you'd throw in. I get it, but uh if they don't want him to have Tommy John surgery, then they probably need to park his ass on the bench for a few weeks. But uh so the, the Mets lead the NL East at the moment by five games over the Philadelphia Phillies, who are thirty-three and thirty-three. The Atlanta Braves are thirty and thirty-five. Washington Nationals, they have finally climbed out of the bottom of the NL East at 30-35 and 35 as well. Um, Four-game winning streak for them. The Miami Marlins are now in last place in the NL East at 29-39. and 39. They've lost four in a row. The NL Central is shaping up to be extremely competitive. Uh, the top four teams are all separated by just three games. The leader at the moment is the Chicago Cubs, uh, and the Milwaukee Brewers—they're both tied at 38 and 30. They both have lost three games in a row. The Cincinnati Reds are 35 and 31, just two games back of the Cubs and the Brewers. They've won eight out of their last ten, six in a row. They're playing pretty good baseball at the moment. The St. Louis Cardinals—they've also a little streak here. There are three in a row. They're 35 and 33. They're a game back of Cincinnati and three games back of the Cubs and the Brewers. So those four teams are all separated by just three games. Now last place in the NL Central is the Pittsburgh Pirates. They're 23-44, and and they have lost 10 games in a row. So it appears that uh, almost a halfway point, you can probably close the door on the Pirates. Now in the National League West, the San Francisco Giants are still atop that division. That division is rugged, man. Um, we might have three playoff teams from that division. But the Giants are 43-25. and 25. They're two games in front of the Los Angeles Dodgers, who are 41-27. and 27. Now the other night, uh, on Tuesday night this past week, Dodgers Stadium had a reopening day for uh, the Dodgers, and basically, they had a full capacity crowd on hand uh, for the first time since October of 2019. Uh, Vin Scully came out onto the field and gave his legendary, you know, uh, three, two, one, play ball, Dodger baseball type, whatever he, you know, said on the radio all those years. But it was pretty cool seeing Dodger Stadium packed because it's it's been at limited capacity up until this past week. So. Uh, That place usually gets uh, a full crowd every night, but third place in the NL West is the San Diego Padres, 38 and 32. Now, they are four games back of the Dodgers and six games back of the Giants. Uh, They've lost three in a row. Uh, This is a team that I thought was going to be uh, in the mix all season. Uh, They're not quite eliminated yet, obviously. Plenty of baseball to go, but uh, they're six games back of the Giants at the moment, so uh, they need to st- start playing some some good baseball here. They've only won twice in their last 10 games, so that needs to change. Colorado Rockies are 28-41. and 41. Uh, They're fourth in the NL West, and last place in the NL West, the Arizona Diamondbacks. They're 20-49, and 49, and they are officially the worst team in Major League Baseball. They have lost 13 games in a row, which is horrid. Uh, Now, the other bad streak that they have going on for the Diamondbacks is that they have lost 22 straight road games, which ties the longest streak of that nature in Major League Baseball history. The uh, 1963 Mets and the 1943 Phillies are the only other teams to lose 22 straight road games. So the Diamondbacks are not in good company there, but... Uh, again, uh, you can close the door on the Diamondbacks. They will not be going anywhere uh, but the uh, bottom of the basement there in uh, the National League West. But we'll flip over to the American League. In the AL East, the Tampa Bay Rays are 43-26. and 26. They lead that division by a game over the Boston Red Sox, who are 42-27. and 27. Boston's on a three-game win streak. Uh, they've... You know, I, I would, I, I think the Boston Red Sox are a little better than the Tampa Bay Rays, especially now because the Rays have to deal with a major injury to Tyler Glass now, their starting pitcher, which we'll get into here and in around the island shortly. But uh, the Yankees are third in the AL East, 35 and 32. There's a little bit of a gap there. The Yankees are six games behind the Red Sox and seven games behind the Rays. So... The Yankees are starting to fall behind uh, more so than they probably would care for. Um, there's, again, a lot of baseball left, but they, uh, they're they seven games back of the Rays at the moment. The Toronto Blue Jays are 33-33. and 33. Uh, They're not quite out of that race just yet. They've lost uh, three in a row. They've only won three out of their last ten Um they are a game and a half back of the Yankees, meaning they're eight and a half back of the Rays. I don't see they have a, the American League MVP front runner at the moment, Vlad Guerrero Jr. on their team, so uh, he might win the triple crown as well. But uh, because of that, and their their other young good players that they have, I don't think they're quite out of the playoff conversation yet. But a team that is is the last place team in the AL East, the Baltimore Orioles, twenty two and forty five. They, uh, they've only won twice in their last 10. They've lost seven in a row. Now, in the American League Central, this one, uh, this has been kind of the same the last uh, two or three weeks or so. The Chicago White Sox are still atop the division at 43-25. and 25. They're looking pretty damn good, uh, pretty legit. They've won eight out of their last 10, and uh, they're playing some really good baseball. They're 27-12 and 12 at home, which is a great... One of the best records in the league. I think it is the best record in in the league, uh, in a home record that is. Cleveland Indians are thirty seven and twenty eight. They are four and a half games back of the White Sox. Uh, they have won three in a row, seven out of their last ten. But uh, the Indians uh, seem to be the closest team to catch. The White Sox at the moment because the Kansas City Royals are 30 and 37. They're 12 and a half games back of the White Sox and uh, they've lost six in a row, only won once in their last 10. So uh, the Royals are going to need to pick it up if they want to be uh, in any kind of contention. I think they're probably too far back um, just based on the way that the White Sox are playing. The Detroit Tigers 29 and 39. Uh, they've They've won three in a row, five out of their last ten. Uh, they're, they're 14 games back of the White Sox. I don't believe them to be in any kind of playoff contention. Couple of their pitchers, uh, Casey Mize, he's looked pretty good. And then, of course, Spencer Turnbull, he just got hurt, I think, in his last start. But he, uh, he has a no-hitter this year already. Uh, but the Minnesota Twins uh, are last in the AL Central at 27-41, and 41, which is very surprising. They're sixteen games out of first place, so I I don't believe that they're going to make that gap up in the second half of the season. Uh, But they have Jose uh, Jose Barrios, uh, starting pitcher. You know they got Nelson Cruz to lead that offense. Uh, Mitch Garver. I I just I'm very surprised that Minnesota is in last place. I would have I would have said at this point in the season they would be in the first three spots in that division, but. Such is not the case, and uh, they do not seem to be uh, improving. In the American League West, the Oakland A's. This is another division that really hasn't changed in a, about two or three weeks. The Oakland A's are still atop the AL West, 43-27. and 27. They're looking really good. Uh, they're one of the better teams in baseball. They've won eight out of their last ten. they have They've also won six in a row. Uh, they are two-and-a-half games in front of the Houston Astros, who are 39-28. and 28. Now, the Astros, uh, they just got through with a series against the Texas Rangers. So they have a three-game winning streak, you know, seven out of their last ten. Um, I believe they can catch the A's for sure. Uh, that's going to be an interesting race the rest of the season. The Seattle Mariners are third at 34-36, and 36, nine games back of the a's uh six and a half games back of the the astros they've played 500 baseball over their last 10. Uh, i like the mariners they have some good hitters but i do not see them competing with the a's and the astros for a playoff spot fourth place in the al west the los angeles angels 33 and 35 they've lost three in a row um they, but they have won six out of their last ten. They're, they're also nine games back uh, of the A's and six and a half back of the Astros. I like the Mariners more than I do the Angels, but um, those two could easily flip-flop at any point. And then you have, in the last place, the American League West, the Texas Rangers, 25-43. and 43. Uh, They have won three out of their last ten. Three-game losing streak currently. Uh, they 're just not good. Uh, they wall up the Dodgers on Saturday night this past week, but uh, they are just not a good team uh, sometimes they're difficult to watch, but I will still continue to root for them and hopefully they can at least pry their way out of the basement of the a l west but like i said we 're uh, between sixty five seventy games into this season, so uh we're we're moving along sure we'll have some more uh injury updates over the next week and maybe a little movement in the standings but we'll definitely stay tuned on that we're full force in summer here it's uh it's getting to be the the, it's well it's the middle of June so we're you know we're right in the middle of baseball season we have an all-star game coming up so we'll have uh, plenty to talk about over the next couple weeks here uh, in the baseball segment But we'll move over to our segment called Around the Island. And that is where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports. And we'll start off in the National Football League. Uh, The first thing of note is that the NFL has modified their new COVID protocols for the rest of the offseason, training camp, and uh, preseason. So uh, these are the new uh, protocol modifications for Uh, vaccinated versus non-vaccinated individuals in the NFL. So daily testing will not be required for fully vaccinated people, but it will be required for non-fully vaccinated people. I think that makes sense. Uh, If you're fully vaccinated, the uh, masks are not required at club facilities or during team travel, and there's no social distancing required in the club facility with other vaccinated players. You also do not have to quarantine after a high-risk exposure to COVID, whereas the non-fully vaccinated players must wear masks at the team facilities and during travel. They must uh, remain socially distant from the other people in the club, uh, and they must also quarantine after a high-risk exposure to COVID. Now, with regards to traveling and whatnot, uh, Fully vaccinated individuals have no travel restrictions. Where non-fully vaccinated people do have travel restrictions, and some other perks to being fully vaccinated. There's no capacity in the weight rooms. Uh, they may eat in the cafeteria with other fully vaccinated team members. No restrictions uh, on social uh, or media, social media marketing sponsorship opportunities. That uh, groups of players may use the steam room and sauna and they may interact with vaccinated family and friends during team travel. Whereas non-fully vaccinated players or team members have a 15-player limit in the weight room, they must be physically distanced in the meal room, and they may not eat with uh, other teammates. The staff must grab and go, no meals with the players. Uh, They are not allowed to partake in any social media marketing sponsorship activities, Um, they may not use the sauna or steam room and non fully non fully vaccinated players also may not leave the hotel room to eat in restaurants or interact with anyone outside of the team so there's a lot of protocols there but uh, that's pretty basic Uh, again the NFL I've mentioned this numerous times the NFL is uh, highly encouraging vaccination uh, as uh, you know as I've stated in the past I think if you're playing professional sport, <clears throat> I think you should be required to be vaccinated. Uh, that eliminates any possibility uh of uh you know spreading it or whatever. But uh so that's those are the the COVID protocols, like I said, for at least the rest of the off season, the preseason, and the uh uh training camps. So they may they may revisit those before the start of the season, but I do not see those changing. Uh, really, at all. But the other piece of NFL news deals with the Madden video game. Uh, This past week, the uh, EA Sports announced the cover athlete for Madden 2022. And for the first time in 12 years, we have a dual cover athlete, set of cover athletes, and it's two of the better quarterbacks we've ever seen, Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes. They will both... Uh, be on the cover of Madden 22 it's called Madden 22 the MVP edition and of course Brady's won plenty of MVPs and so too has Patrick Mahomes so that makes sense but um, I'm a big Madden guy uh, I usually get the game every year and uh, so I'm looking forward to that hopefully neither of those two have a Madden curse because that was our uh, Super Bowl matchup this past year so uh, we'll we'll have to see on that but Brady and Mahomes will be on the cover of Madden. We'll move over to the National Hockey League. New Jersey Devils defenseman P.K. Subban. He, of course, the Devils did not make the playoffs. Uh, he actually got hired by ESPN to be an NHL analyst. And he made his debut on SportsCenter uh, last week after the episode, uh, last week's episode dropped. So uh, I didn't see it, but uh, Suban is—he's a good dude. He's seems to be super personable. Um, he's does a lot of charity work, so he's—he's he's a cool dude. Um, you know, I don't know what his future holds in New Jersey because uh, I think he's wanting to get out. He still has a lot of money owed to him, but a uh, pretty cool little gig for him to be an NHL analyst on ESPN. But there have been two teams I mentioned uh, over the last few episodes. All the head coaching vacancies that have come open in the NHL? Well, two of them have been filled. The first one's the Columbus Blue Jackets. They announced that they have promoted assistant coach Brad Larson to their head coaching spot, making him the eighth head coach in franchise history. Larson spent seven seasons with the Blue Jackets as an assistant coach, uh, primarily coaching the team's power play. And his only previous head coaching experience was with the AHL's Springfield Falcons from 2012 to 2014. So uh, it seems as though they're uh, trying to, uh, you know, keep the same similar culture uh, as they've as, as they, you know they've had with with him assistant coach being hired as prom- uh, promoted. I guess you could say to head coach. But the other team to hire a new head coach is the New York Rangers. The Rangers have chosen Gerard Gallant to become the 36th head coach in New York Rangers history. He's been a real successful coach over the years. Uh, He most recently coached in the NHL from 2017 to 2020 when he coached the Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, He was the first uh, first head coach in Golden Knights history, and he actually took the Knights to the Stanley Cup Finals in their very first season. And then here recently... Uh, Gerard Gallant coached the Canadian uh, world team, the uh, international team that just played in Latvia a couple weeks ago. They started uh, the tournament 0-3, the Canadian team did, which is uh, you know, definitely not something they're used to doing. But he ended up bringing them back, getting them into the uh, playoff tournament, and all they did was go on to win. So uh, he Gallant led the Canadian team to a, a gold medal in that IIHF uh, International Championship that we just had here recently. So the dude can coach. Uh, he's, he's been in the league a long time, but uh, I think that's a good hire for the Rangers. Uh, they got a lot of young players that uh, could use a veteran coach like Gallant. So we'll see how that works out. But we'll move over to Major League Baseball. And this past week, there has been a lot of discussion uh, regarding the use of illegal substances that pitchers are using in order to get a better grip on the ball when they throw. Now, last week, New York Yankees pitcher Garrett Cole was asked if he used illegal substances or not, and his answer was highly suspect. Uh, He basically talked his way around answering a yes-or-no question, uh, you can insinuate that he does just based on his answer, but it was very strange, and uh, that basically sparked a bunch of discussions about the topic, and mainly this is in response to a record number of strikeouts uh, by pitchers this year and a league batting average at a at a low that we have not seen in more than half of a century, so uh, pitchers are... Doing really well, there's been more strikeouts, uh, less hitting, and so baseball looked into it and thinks that the use of foreign substances by pitchers is part of the problem. So Major League Baseball came out and announced that any player caught using a foreign substance on balls will be ejected from that game and then suspended for 10 additional games. Repeat offenders are going to be given progressive discipline, and teams and club members will also be subject to discipline for failure to comply. The umpires are going to begin conducting regular checks of all pitchers, even if the opposing managers do not request the inspection. So baseball is going to be cracking down on this pretty hard. Now, I mentioned Tyler Glasnow, the Tampa Bay Rays ace starting pitcher. Well, he made a start this past week, and he was taken out due to uh, an elbow injury. Okay. And after the game, he, he was diagnosed with a partially torn ulnar collateral ligament, or UCL, in his elbow, as well as a flexor tendon strain. So pitchers that have torn UCLs require Tommy John surgery, which is, uh, you know, like an 18-month recovery process. But Tyler Glasnow took to the media, and he basically said that he uses foreign substances to grip the ball. Like basically he said he uses sunscreen and that after the announcement by Major League Baseball he quit using that cold turkey which caused him to grip the ball harder which he believes caused his injury. So Glassnow is basically ripping Major League Baseball saying that pitchers are having to change the way that they throw the baseball, they have to grip it harder grip it in ways they're not used to gripping and it's causing them injuries and so uh, Tyler Glass now is likely out for the rest of the season um, and he may need Tommy John surgery depending on the extent of the tear in his UCL which would cause him also to miss most of the next season uh, as well so uh, here's my take on this I, I don't really mind pitchers using substances to get a better grip Um, You don't want batters to get hit by pitchers not having control of their pitches. You don't want somebody to take a 100-mile-an-hour pitch to the head because they weren't able to properly grip it. Other players have spoken on this and and basically said that as well. You know, if if the pitchers are, you know, getting too many strikeouts, like baseball is basically saying, then, you know, I I don't know that gripping the ball – is going to change that, um, you know, there are some really good pitchers in baseball today and uh, there's also some really good hitters and, um, you know, I think as a league, you, your best interest is to try and keep your players as healthy as possible because you're all, your star players are what make you money and revenue. So, uh, I personally, uh, disagree with Major League Baseball's decision to crack down on this. Um, I don't believe it. It doesn't really increase your velocity, um, it might increase your control, but again, you want, you know, you don't want batters getting hit with, with balls. So, um, I'm, I, I don't really think it's a big issue, uh, like it's being made out to be. And, uh, that just sucks for Glass now that, you know, immediately after this announcement came out, uh, and he doesn't use sunscreen to help grip the ball, he tears his UCL. So, I, I mean, I don't think that that's a coincidence. So, We'll have to see how that turns out and see who the first victim is for a suspension. But we'll move over to the NBA. Uh, Some big news out of the NBA. Dallas Mavericks. Uh, They've had uh, general manager Donnie Nelson uh, part of the organization for the last 24 years. Well, the other day it was announced that both the Mavericks and Donnie Nelson have mutually agreed to part ways, which... Did not go over well with Luka Doncic. Uh, Luka Doncic was apparently really upset about this, which is not good news for the Mavericks because Luka Doncic was just named to the All-NBA First Team, which makes him eligible for a rookie contract max extension. So Luka Doncic is probably going to get a $200 million contract this offseason from the Mavericks, uh, but... Uh, they certainly won't sign him if he's not wanting to stay there. So that is an interesting turn of events there. We'll have to see how that plays out. But uh, another, uh, I mentioned just like the NHL, uh, the NBA's had a bunch of head coaching jobs come available. And this past week, uh, there's been three more uh, head coaches that have uh, either been fired or left. The first one uh, is Indiana Pacers, They have fired head coach Nate Bjorkgren, which is odd because Bjorkgren only coached one season, which was this past year, after signing a multi-year contract. And the Pacers' job is mildly appealing. Uh, They have a couple good players to build around. I just think it's very strange that uh, they missed, uh, you know, they fired their head coach. Uh, They they made the play-in tournament uh i believe in basketball and then lost out so they didn't make the playoffs necessarily but um it's not like they played bad enough to miss the play-in tournament so i don't understand what's going on there but uh the new orleans pelicans they're the second team they've announced that they have fired their head coach dan van gundy again just after one season now the pelicans missed the playoffs you know but of course they have zion william uh, zion williamson um, Lonzo Ball. They have a, some good talent there um, in New Orleans, so that job is is pretty appealing as well. And then the final head coaching vacancy to come open this past week was the Washington Wizards. They, uh, the Wizards and head coach Scott Brooks, they could not reach an agreement on a new deal, so they mutually agreed to part ways. So again, Wizards made the playoffs. They, you know, they were in. In that first round, looking pretty good, uh, but uh, Brooks was due for a new contract and uh, they didn't want to pay him, so they decided to go their separate ways. But, uh, interesting note here this past week, uh, Los Angeles Lakers forward LeBron James came out and said that he is going to be switching his jersey number next season. So, he's going to go from the iconic number 23 jersey that he's worn most of his career. Back to the number six jersey that he wore when he was a member of the Miami Heat. And LeBron actually won two of his four NBA titles while wearing number six. So I'm not really sure what the reasoning or rationale is behind switching numbers, but LeBron will be number six next year for the Lakers. And the final piece of NBA news uh, there's been a lot of talk this season about. Injuries and the increased number of injuries in basketball because of the condensed 72-game season. Well, some data to report on that. Uh, the average number of players sidelined per game due to injury, non-COVID illness, or rest this season was 5.1, which includes both teams. And that does not include missed games due to players who were in the health and safety protocols. So that 5.1% players per game that were sidelined is the highest since uh, this, this state, these stats came from ESPN stats and info and that 5.1 is the highest number since ESPN started tracking that uh, in the 20, uh, 2009, 2010 season. The next highest was 4.8. So this, this season was 5% higher there in terms of the number of players sidelined per game due to injury. Now, that increase was even more pronounced when you focus on the league's star players. So, for instance, this season's All-Stars missed 370 out of a possible 1,944 games, which is 19%. That's the highest percentage in an NBA, uh, NBA history, according to the Elias Sports Bureau, as far as All-Stars missing games 19 percent of the games all-stars missed and which puts it at an average of 13.7 regular season games missed per all-star this year so that's that's quite a bit considering the, the season was only 72 games and anybody that was elected to the all-star game this year missed an average of almost 14 games during the regular season which that's that is quite a bit And most of these injuries that we've seen in the NBA are soft tissue injuries, which are generally attributed to fatigue and stress. And uh, late in the season, the schedule got more condensed because there were some games that had to be made up from uh, COVID postponements and whatever else. So uh, those factors increased the risk of injury, which, you know, here's my take on it. Uh, You know, I think basketball players are some of the uh, weakest players in all of the major pro sports. Um, There's nobody as tough as a hockey player. You know, football is pretty tough. You know, uh, baseball, you know, it's not really a contact sport, but uh, basketball, those guys just seem like, um, you know, like they need to be babied a lot more. So uh, I didn't, you know, I just came across that an article with that data that basically indicates that uh the the claims uh, of NBA injuries increase this year actually are legit, um, but you know, again, it's basketball, and if you, all you have to do is watch LeBron James get poked in the eye, and you can understand why uh, basketball players aren't as tough as others. But we'll move over to the NCAA and college football. Some big news out of college football, actually. It was announced this past week that the College Football Playoff Management Committee is going to consider expanding to a 12-team playoff format when it meets uh, in Chicago very soon. Now, this proposal calls for the bracket to include the 6th highest highest-ranked conference champions and the six highest remaining ranked teams as determined by the College Football Playoff Selection Committee. So this essentially puts more emphasis on conference championships, which the college football playoff committee has seemed to kind of get away from these past couple years. It's been more of a popularity contest than it has been a productivity contest for the college football playoff selection committee over these past few years. So uh, I think expanding, it's a great idea. And the proposal also states that no conference is going to automatically qualify And that there's going to be no limit on the number of participants from each conference. So we can have six SEC teams if they so choose, which I don't really like that, but you can't really limit it. You're going to have your six highest ranked conference champions and your six highest remaining ranked teams after the conference champions are in. I think that's the fairest way to do it. And uh, we're going to get plenty of good competition Uh, that would have included... Uh, smaller teams this year into the playoffs. If that was in full effect, such as uh, Coastal Carolina, that would have given them their shot to get into the, you know, move on into the playoffs. But uh, it is what it is. I'm all for the playoff expansion because I'm, quite frankly, I am sick of seeing Alabama, Clemson, and Notre Dame uh, and Oklahoma as your four playoff teams every year. And then you sub out Oklahoma one year with Georgia and then, but you still have Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State. I'm tired of seeing those three teams in the Final Four every year. I think the uh, NCAA needs to expand it, and it looks like they're about to do that. So that is interesting. Uh, if it gets approved, I, I doubt that we would see it uh, anytime in the next season or two. But hopefully, that gets approved because that needs to happen in college football. But moving from college football over to college baseball real quick, the uh, 2021 Men's College World Series bracket was announced. We have uh, four matchups in the first round. First one, North Carolina State versus Stanford. The winner of that game plays the winner of the Arizona versus Vanderbilt matchup. And Vanderbilt is a top-ranked team in the country. Uh, they very likely have two of the top five players in the upcoming MLB draft in pitchers' Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker. Hopefully one of them will be a Texas Ranger. But on the other side of the bracket, the Texas Longhorns, they take on the Mississippi State Bulldogs. And they the winner of that game plays the winner of the Virginia-Tennessee matchup. So uh, I'm rooting for Texas. Obviously the Longhorns are my team. So hopefully uh, the Horns can put together a little College World Series run. But uh, it's always always fun watching college world series that's going to wrap up just before the uh, MLB draft takes place so uh there's players on all those teams that are that'll end up getting drafted pretty high but uh that's going to wrap up the 44th episode of the Sports Island podcast hope you all enjoyed that definitely another busy episode a lot of information to get to and uh this next week we'll we'll have a probably a conclusion of the uh conference finals in the NHL we'll uh NBA's conference finals will, will probably be about halfway through, and uh, we'll, we'll discuss those and, of course, uh, plenty of more information to get to uh, in Major League Baseball and the other sports. So uh, until then, happy Father's Day weekend to all you dads out there. Enjoy the U.S. Open this weekend, and stay safe, be well, and we'll catch you on Sports Island next week.